0: and Barry. and this week, as I mentioned when we were talking about our match of the week, it's been a hot tick. We are going back to St. Louis Mo. It's St. Louis, Missouri, the studios of uh, the Chase uh, Park Plaza Hotel. And we're going to see Ken Patera taking on Kerry Von Eric, pre-Modern Day Warrior, as we discussed. We're going to talk about that. We're going to be looking at the biggest NBA draft bust of all time. Uh Let's see what else. Uh, offering some food topics. We're going to be talking a little uh, uh new show to recommend on Netflix that Barry and I both checked out. But before we start, Barry, we have a little health update. Yes, you may have recalled last week the booker was a little bit under the weather uh, reference at the beginning of the show. Kind of a beat around the bush, Barry. It can now be revealed. I had the vid.
1: Well, and Jeff, we gotta say, you made this, you bounced back, you came through it. It's so weird. And we, we started discussing this last week and, and then we kind of put the brakes on it only because you weren't ready to publicly say, Hey, I had the vid. You wanted to kind of recover first, which made a lot of sense to me. With that, my symptoms, I thought I was dying. You, you made less noise when you, you had cancer. Than I did when I had COVID, (laughs) so I literally thought I was buying the farm and I would let everybody know. But uh, it's amazing how it strikes some people and it's terrible. And for you, I think you said it basically a a bad cold at the end of the day, and you bounce back and you sound perfectly fine now.
0: Well, so here's a couple things. Uh, I I had all three shots, uh, and you know, I know I'm not going to turn this political. There are some people that I know that don't want to do the shots uh, you know, for whatever reason, there are some people that are like, yes, I, I've not only got my third shot, I'm uh, actively seeking out when are they going to do a fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth shot? You know, it's like one of those kind of things, but we got all three because of course I was uh compromised when I had the cancer. And, you know, of course I literally went in the hospital with my cancer treatments, uh, like a day or two after COVID broke. Uh, and so, you know, I was very concerned about that managed to go, Good Lord, almost 3 years now Barry without catching the uh, creeping crud. My lovely wife brought it home to me. And uh, you know, she uh, it was funny because our daughter was like, uh, "Are you going to test yourself?" "No, it's just a cold, it's just a cold." And then she finally said, "Alright, why don't I go ahead and take the test?" And uh we both took the test and uh, yeah, son of a bitch, I got it and she had it. And uh so, you know, she uh her symptoms were done before me. Uh, mine are now gone. Uh, you know, everything's uh hokey dokey. Uh, but here's one of the things that's interesting, Barry, uh, when you had it, you, you did have it, correct?
1: Oh yeah. I had. Yeah.
0: It. Okay. So let's just discuss the ending of your, uh, symptoms and your, uh, particular, you know, situation that you discussed with having COVID at the end of the COVID, when you were starting to get over it, was there one last little thing that happened? Shall I say? Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: I don't. I'm super fucking curious though.
0: Well, I- let's just say that you are famous, uh, within our group, uh, and, uh, you were made famous <laughs> because of our boy Joe Christie, uh, yeah. where you had the Ethiopians, uh, did you have any Ethiopian-like situation happen to you towards the tail? I hate to say this. The tail end, no pun oh. intended, of your COVID <sighs> situation
1: it was never ter- so that was one aspect that was never terrible for me thank god jeff
0: well let's just say that the other night uh towards the <clears throat> tail end of my covid symptoms i was suddenly awakened hmm, 5:15ish and it was run into the bathroom time you know Yeah, you ever have a uh, you ever have a dream where in your dream you're like uh uh, you're like taking a leak or something like that. And then you kind of wake up and you're like, yeah, uh, somebody, something uh, told me to get up because I need to take a leak. Uh, you ever have that kind of thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, uh, I don't know if I had a dream where I was, uh, getting ready to, uh, sit down and, uh, pop a squat as they say, but suddenly I woke up and I was like, uh, I don't need to wait. I need to run now to the bathroom at which point the, uh, Joe Christie shout out Ethiopian like situation happened to me. Uh, then I went back, uh, into, uh, into bed and uh mrs Bowdrin, uh, hey, you okay uh yeah uh <clears throat> barely made it to the old toilet there uh so uh and uh, upon uh further investigation, Mrs. Bowdrin informing me that uh in many ways that is the end of the symptoms, and the uh, road to recovery has begun after you uh have one of those wake up calls uh literally and figuratively Barry. so happy to hear that you did not have that. So one of the things, interestingly enough, that happened to my wife was my wife, uh, called, uh, called in to her office that, uh, I'm not coming into work. I've tested positive. She then has to call corporate where she gets all the protocols, uh, what you do, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, and my wife works in a facility where she's required to wear a mask, but even if she doesn't have COVID or if she does, she's required to wear a mask because she's dealing with patients, right? And uh, so. They told her, uh, go ahead and stay home. Now, I have to tell you something. I've been with Mrs. Bowden for going on, I don't know, 23 years now. Uh, and I think this was the second or third day max that Mrs. Bowden has ever called in sick. She just does not do that ever. And she called in sick basically because she was forced to, uh, told him what the problem was. But by that point, she had really kind of stopped having the symptoms. She tested positive, but she wasn't really having the symptoms anymore, at which point apparently – one of the ladies that uh, works in the same office with her, that and may I mention that Mrs. Baldwin doesn't come into direct contact with because the woman is in a separate office within the office. Uh, she has a, you know, she does her own work on the computer there. Uh, she comes down with COVID, okay? Somehow this was all my wife's fault, okay? And somehow, even though it's beyond, you know, behind closed doors and my wife wears a mask and all this kind of stuff. So then, now this is where I I bring you into the conversation, Barry. Then what happened was the woman apparently goes onto social media and mentions, a coworker gave me COVID. Now, apparently there was another person in the office that also had COVID at the same time as Kim. So, of course, you know, God forbid she should actually look into it. And, uh, you know, if Kim had been the only person that had it, didn't wear a mask, had been spending time with her, coughing on her, or something like that. Well, maybe I could understand her anger, but she was reminded, I believe, by the uh, the the manager of said location that uh, <laughs> going on social media and basically you trying go. to accuse someone yep. of giving them something, which, by the way, did not happen at, at any rate. Uh, that's a no no from corporate, and uh, is cause for termination. Barry, what say you?
1: had, and has said person been terminated thus far?
0: Uh, I believe a uh, frank and honest discussion was had with right. said uh, employee. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, come on,
1: people. I find it interesting too. And I'll tell you what, a lot of businesses, even something that you may not think, uh, at, is at a high level, lower level, uh, positions, they have it written in that you cannot disparage or say anything on social media and any day, at any given time, you can pop on to something like Facebook. I'm not really on Twitter and the other – I guess I'm on Instagram. But you can pop on Facebook and there's going to be somebody there either complaining about their employment, their employers, or their coworkers. And often they're naming names. They're saying, oh, yeah, I work at this place down the street and it sucks. The management sucks. All management has to do is see that basically reach out to HR and these people are going to be terminated. So I, I just, I get frustration with employment. You know, I forget what the stat is, but it's like 80% of people can't stand their jobs. But, uh, you know, at the same time, if you're disparaging a business and the idea of business is to make money and you're disparaging it, you're saying things that may be opinion based or maybe not true, you could be impacting their business. And if you're an employer and, and one of your employees does this, what do you think's gonna happen, Jeff? They are gonna terminate. You handle this shit privately. It's the same way when I get onto social media and I see that, oh, so and so's getting divorced. Well, thank you for letting us in the entire world know. Why? What's the purpose of, of putting your dirty laundry in some form out there? I'll never understand that.
0: And again, I will just say that if Kim, uh, had not been immunized, if she did not, uh, follow all the protocols, uh, she wore the mask and all this, she got it somewhere from somebody, uh, and we're guessing from work. Yeah. And then she was nice enough to give it to me, uh, you know,
1: she works in the healthcare field. Yes. This yeah, is yeah.
0: what happens. And, and you know, so, and this woman somehow, uh, decided, and I will say she didn't call Kim out by name, uh, right. or the other employee there that had COVID by name, but still it's like, why, why do you want to do that? That's just, you're, you're just asking for corporate to crawl right up the old butthole. And you know, then you and get what you, you know,
1: friction with your coworkers too. Exactly. Right? Now yeah. speaking
0: of creating friction, King uh-huh, of the I Smooth segues there, Barry. I know you love a good food discussion, and in the news recently, Barry, a managerial type at Olive Garden, got in a little bit of hot water for a uh, a letter she uh, decided to send out to some of her employees about their absentee policy. Oh, Barry, this was loads of fun. Why don't you give the uh, give the manager slash employee <laughs> slash server uh, sure. view of this particular story that happened uh, recently on social media?
1: Absolutely, and it did happen on social media, so what had happened? It was a manager of an olive garden i i 'll say Tennessee or Virginia for some reason, and i don't remember all the details because my, I think it's been four or five days, and as my memory goes i don 't remember but a manager was really tired of employees calling out sick, which has been it's always been an issue, but I think has gotten worse the last couple of years, and uh, was basically saying, you know if your dog dies. Then you need to bring in your dead dog. Uh, if you, you know, it was just, it was that kind of a thing where you could sense how frustrated and fed up the manager was and decided it would be a good idea to make this public. And I believe sent out an email to everybody, posted it publicly that in the future, we are going to do this and we're going to do that. And it was really harsh. Of course, when you work for a company like Olive Garden, uh, which is owned by Darden Restaurants, which I believe is the largest restaurant corporation and company in this country uh you just don't go ahead and make a policy like that that's something that you would have to run by the honchos they would have to agree on it you would probably want to bring hr involved and instead the manager at olive garden they went totally rogue and basically said and it wasn't friendly it was a harsh tone that uh i'm done You know, you people want to do this shit, just know that I'm going to ask for notes, I'm going to ask for proof, et cetera, et cetera. Let me now relate this to me, Jeff. So 1994, there was a wrestling pay-per-view, and I believe it was at Greg Goods House, and it was on a Sunday. And I wanted to go. You were going to be there. Uh Flaherty Do you least.
0: really need any more reason to go to this event than uh knowing that I was gonna be there? That was, though, it. That to was it? Okay, go ahead.
1: Flaherty was gonna be there, at least physically, Greg would have been there. It was his house. I think even second or third match before he fell asleep. Well, what do you oh, think? Well, usually it's before the <laughs> before <laughs> the fucking card even starts. He's out. And that that's Jeff says that. Everybody, <laughs> just everybody knows that's a shoot. That there's no he's I, I remember the one I was at one and it was at Greg's house. And it was still light out. The, the the card hadn't even started. Greg's son, who was probably ten or eleven at that time, is running around. Flaherty passed out on the couch, mouth wide open, catching flies, <laughs> just fucking gone. But uh, so I had I really wanted to hang with you guys. This was a uh, I think it was a fun card, though I don't remember all the matches. But there was something I really wanted to see, and I had asked for this Sunday off for two weeks, and. The, and I was a server. So the higher ups said, sorry, we can't give you this off. Uh, other people have already requested you're going to have to work. So I was resigned to the fact that I was going to have to work night before I went out and I saw a guy named Otmar Liebert in concert in Pompano at the band shell, that open air venue down there and wound up getting uh dinner afterwards at IHOP, got a breakfast, pancakes, eggs, sausage. Right, let
0: me just stop you right there. What
1: Certainly. was the guy's name again? Atmar Liebert.
0: Okay, I, I can guarantee you, knowing our group, that right now there's at least three or four people that are going, oh my God, I can't believe Barry brought that name up. Uh, for the uh, other six million people listening that are going, who the fuck is that guy? Well, anyway, you popped those three or four guys. Go ahead.
1: Absolutely. And he is, I will say, I, I haven't heard Hyde nor hair of Atmar Liebert in probably 30 years, but he was a, uh he was a guitar, he wasn't a singer, he was a guitarist and he would do a lot of flamenco, and it was really cool, German guy, but really cool, beautiful music. Regardless, I went to IHOP. I got a real serious case of food poisoning, kept me up all night. How does that translate,
0: that serious case of food poisoning?
1: It was a lot of shitting and a lot of vomiting, (laughs) and it also translated into me calling into work around 3.30 that afternoon. (laughs) And let me say it was not received well. And, uh, they, I, I wound up feeling better that night, but I stayed home. I think I ordered the pay-per-view. I get a call the next day that I've been suspended for a week and based off of asking, being denied and then taking off. And I said, no, I got to be honest. I was really sick. They didn't believe a fucking word I was saying. Uh, and you know, I got to admit it bothered me, but at the same time, if I was a manager, I don't know if I would have believed it either, right? It seemed a little fishy. So I go into work the next week, and there's the GM and the assistant manager. So the assistant manager got aggressive with me. And this guy's name was Marco. Marco, the fucking douchebag. And he was My age, I don't know, but he was a real douchebag. So. You can kiss Barry's ass, Marco. Exactly. Yeah. I'd I'd like to find you now and tell you what I think about you, you piece of shit, but I, I clearly don't remember his last name. So the GM said, uh, you know, he goes based off, it was professional based off of circumstances. We had to suspend you because everyone was aware that you wanted the week, the day off. We had told you a week to two weeks prior. Couldn't give you off. And then you call out. And I said, but I really was sick. And he said, OK, but regardless, this is our policy and this is what we had to do. And then I said, you know, I'm really sorry it turned out that way. So Marco looks at me and he goes, oh, we're fine. We've already gotten over you. So the manager, the GM, looks at Marco and, and does the calm down situation. I look at Marco and I say, if you got a problem, I'm right here. And, you know, he wasn't going to do shit. Especially Nothing the between the, the two of
0: us, but air and opportunity.
1: That's it, right? Yeah. So he uh he did not and I he was a skinny little guy. I could have taken him in a heartbeat. But with that Using
0: your vast shooting skills.
1: Well, you know, please. <laughs> I was being stretched by Stu Hart in the dungeon for a decade. My God, if I didn't have those. But You so know would have that,
0: given Marco the one arm backbreaker, courtesy of Joe Duke. I that's I get right.
1: You. But with it, I have been on both sides. Of the call out situation and I, have always taken the approach that I think there needs to be a policy. And the beauty of it was when I worked for Universal Studios, they, they were really, I mean, because it's universal, right? So it's, they really had a policy down and you were allowed to call out, I want to say three times within two months. I, I don't remember the number, but anything above that was documented. And then if you called out, let's say you called out five times in two months, they would have the documentation and you could be terminated. So it, I think a lot, you know, it, it's having procedures and it's documenting uh, to make it happen. But it's the bastion of my existence as a manager as well, because. You can count on every shift somebody's going to call out. And I always tried to tell my servers back of the house. I would a lot of times let the chef handle that and how he wanted to. Uh, but I would basically tell the front of the house, if you can't make your shift, the first rule that we have is you have to get your shift covered. And that's fine. You, you need to take off Tuesday because you don't feel good. You're hungover. There you have a court case. I don't know. Just. You know, there's there's 40 other servers. Make sure that your shift is covered. Don't just call out. And that, that always seemed to work for us.
0: So I have another food-related question uh, that just popped up over the weekend. So uh, I'm picking up uh, a food order from uh, the local Mickey D's, okay? And I was picking up the order. People were very nice there. But I noticed one thing, and I wanted to see if this was a uh, – policy that is all over the country like this or if it is dependent on different organizations and or restaurant chains so they're making up the order getting it already bagging it up and stuff like that and i look in the back and guy back there uh, working the uh the food prep line has his hair pulled back into a ponytail and then the kid that's working over by the fries you know putting the salt on top of the fries as they come out of the deep fryer He's, uh, got, uh, I'm going to say a little bit of the shaggy hair going. Okay. Uh, down in his eyes, uh, down to, uh, you know, his shoulders and stuff like that. I mean, not ridiculously long, but it was also not pulled back, not in any kind of net. Now I, I was telling Kim the story and I remember far back, you know, you mentioned IHOP. My brother, I think had a summer job at IHOP and my brother had to wear his ha- hair in a net. So what is the policy that you know of? Uh, as far as when you're working on a food line, you're doing food prep, as far as having to wear either a cap, a hairnet, a scarf, whatever the case may be, is that across the board or does it depend on the restaurant?
1: 100% across the board. It's mandatory, and I believe it's mandatory federally. So it's every single state. You not only have to wear a cap over your hair, if you have a beard, you have to wear a hairnet over your beard. If you are touching food in any form, you need to have gloves on. So things to watch out for, and I see this all the time, you can go into a place, let's say Subway, and I don't know if Subway, you know, I, I, I apologize in advance if I'm disparaging Subway, but a lot of times the guy making your sandwich is also the guy collecting your money, and sometimes they don't, they don't remove the gloves before they go for the money. So they might take your money, then they may go make a sandwich. They're touching the dirty money and then doing that. It is the law. You have to have gloves on if you're touching food, even in the kitchen, even if they're not in front of you, in the back, they have to do it. And then the top of your head and the beard has to be covered.
0: So this son of a bitch that was over the fries with his, uh, shaggy hair, uh, with no net, no cap, no nothing, uh, perhaps, uh, putting his, uh, you know, dandruff in the, the fries, which by the way, I didn't pick up anyway. But, uh, you know, it was violating federal protocol. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: You come to breaking Fabe with Boudreaux and Barry, not just for your wrestling intel. No, 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 not just for movies intel, not just TV, music, pop culture. It's food-related protocol on a federal level. That's what you're here for, which leads us right into the match of the week. Again, smooth segue, Barry. The
1: smoothest.
0: It's time for our match of the week, and I was thinking the other day to myself, I said, you know, self, because I occasionally chat with myself uh, when no one else is listening. And I thought to myself that it has been a hot moment, probably going back to when we originally did the top 100 of the 80s, uh, back in those first, like, 40 or so episodes. Uh, now uh, we're on uh, episode 373, something like wow. that. I'm close. I don't know, Uh, but we haven't done St. Louis in a while. Haven't haven't gone back to uh, the city famous for the Gateway Arch, and so today we are going August second, nineteen eighty one, to the venerable studios of the Chase, and it's Ken Patera taking on the modern day warrior. I don't even know if he was the modern day warrior. That's how long ago this match was. Uh, It's Kerry Von Erich, August second, nineteen eighty one. Barry Rose, let's talk a little St. Louis wrestling. Tell the folks what you thought about this match.
1: Yeah, an interesting match, too. And, you know, St. Louis to me is in so many ways as a promotion, it's almost an enigma. And it's gotten the reputation, I guess, especially since, you know, St. Louis wrestling wrapped up decades ago as being the premier wrestling city in the U.S. And I got to tell you. And you take offense at that. Well, you know, but I'm going to be gentle about it because I'm a little groggy and tired, but with it, I, I, do I take offense? Maybe, I don't know if I take offense or are we just waxing poetically on days gone by, but St. Louis, when you look at a lot of the cards, they were very good. I, let me go back. Let me say the cards were good. One or two matches were usually excellent. There is no way in my, and I, I would love to have a conversation with somebody about this because I know somebody's going to disagree. It's the nature of the beast. St. Louis wasn't even in the top three or four wrestling cities when it comes to matches or talent. And if you look at the talent that's on the cards, and they did, what they did was they got a good cross section. You might have a Florida guy wrestling an AWA guy you know, or you might have uh, the Von Eriks coming in from Texas working with Ken Patera. And I i don't know, maybe he was mid Atlantic at this stage. I'm not quite sure where he was, but interesting matchups. The problem, in my opinion, a lot of half the matchups were guys coming from the central states. So if you wanted to see a 400 a year old uh, Pat O'Connor working or Ronnie Etchison, who was somewhere around a thousand years old, you could have, you know, it's, I think that people look back at St. Louis with these uh, rose colored glasses because A, it was a, it was run by Sam Munchnick, who was the former president of the NWA. And Sam Munchnick has got a reputation. He wasn't a dick, right? He wasn't a guy that was, you know, uh, bullying or or treating wrestlers like shit. He was a fair, Business guy, a fair payoff man, paid the talent well. And, and, and I respect that aspect of it. But I do think when you look at a lot of the matches that take place in St. Louis and a lot of the cards, again, you're getting maybe two really good matches. You're getting a bunch of underneath matches that again, unless you want to see Bulldog Bob, Bob Brown versus Pat O'Connor for the millionth time, that's what you're getting. But I think you could safely say, Cities like Houston, cities like Atlanta, cities like uh, St. Petersburg, my opinion, were all offering better, better matchups than you were seeing in St Louis with that didn 't seem to bother the fans of St. Louis. They drew consistently, people were happy, and they were convinced they were getting the best wrestling in the in the world, so you know maybe i 'm off base with that did this match did this take place at the hotel, which yes. i 'm assuming wrestling at the chase, and what was the name of the do you remember the name of the room? They had a specific room for it. it I, alt, Altissian, alt. I don't know. I'm sure I'll butcher the fuck out of that, but I have no idea. But interesting setup as well in that they were taking place in what was essentially the banquet room where weddings would take place. I would guess in a, in a nice upscale hotel. And with that, you have an interesting matchup here. So Kerry Von Erich, and I, I think he's still probably a year or two away from the modern day warrior and also uh not heavily into pharmaceuticals, it would appear at this stage. He's got the body of somebody who spends a lot of time in the gym and he's in great shape, but he's not all gigantic and bloated, which we would see years later. Patera, on the other hand, looks like, you know, to me, if you're in the gym, this would be the look that you want. Because he just, you know, low body fat, he's in great shape. He's not freakishly huge, but just looks like a guy that's in great shape. But the other myth that I would like to dispel right now, and I hope I get some hate over this, Jeff, because quite frankly, that makes things a little interesting. Ken Patera, from what I have seen, was not good enough to wear the NWA strap. All right. I'll give everyone a minute there to collectively start messaging or posting on Facebook uh, as they can tell me I'm completely wrong. So Dispatch. wait, 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 wait. Sure. Hey, absolutely. Just
0: sweet Lou was uh, giving us some intel there as you uh, were speaking. Right. Not, not that I'm ignoring you the way you usually do me. <clears throat> uh, the sweetest Lou, yes. Carassian uh, Ballroom at the Chase. That's By right. 1981. They taped in the KPLR studio, which was adjacent to the Chase. Lou always coming through with a solid intel. Thank you, Lou. So your comment was. <laughs> You don't think Patera was good enough to wear
1: the N.W.A. Title. OK, no, I, this-
0: I don't I don't have a dispute with that. I think he was okay. certainly good enough to wear the W.W.W.F. title uh, without. Yeah, without problem. But I, I think the N.W.A. Uh, at this point in time in August of 1981 called for a specific type. And I don't know if that was Patera.
1: It was for, for a lot of reasons for a lot of reasons. And, and and so let's, why don't we touch on what you just said? hundred percent. He should have Vince, uh, should have made him a champion over backland. And, you know, he should have been the guy to take the title from backland. He should have been a guy, uh, and whether he held it for a week or a year, but it, he deserved a title reign because he was perfect for that promotion i'll also uh, go on a limb and think that he could have been an a w a champion you know covering three states, the champion of minneapolis you know as and i I expect a lot of hate off of that one because I did get that last time when I said, "Are you AWA? trying to get hate mail? I think I am trying to yeah. a little bit today. I am fishing a little I'm do, do
0: you want sure you want to kick a puppy or something like that well, uh, no. you know?
1: I'll do anything except abuse an animal though, okay. but a human being I would absolutely kick yeah, okay, anyone in yeah. mind? But uh, sure, how long do you have? What do you, what, how long you want to go today? Shit. Well, I, it I, is I, the holiday season. <laughs> there you go, special holiday edition of people I want to kick the shit out of. But it, there was he just he wasn't strong enough, I don't think, in the ring to be a NWA champion or at least a long term. Could he have been transitional? Maybe, but NWA wasn't doing that. They, they, the only transitional champions they ever did were baby face transitional champions, where in the federation, it was the complete opposite. They would do heel transitional champions. So, yeah, with and the that, AWA, let's be honest,
0: didn't do short term champions.
1: No. And you know what? But that was also their formula and it seemed to work for them. So sure. I'm and, no, and, the, and let's be honest, Nick Bachwinkle was a great choice. I mean, absolutely. That, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I can't find fault, and I don't know if I would have uh, disrupted that at all. So, so, getting, so wait a minute. Wait,
0: it just brought to mind something, and, and maybe we need to discuss this right. the next time uh, we have George Shire on or somebody like that. But the idea that Vern Gagne was having his retirement match, he beats Nick Bockwinkel for the belt, and then he retires. And then the promotion has to then put the belt back on Nick Bockwinkle because Burns – that made no sense whatsoever other than,
1: you know, let's be honest, Vern
0: apparently had a a pretty good-sized ego. (laughs)
1: Well, there you go. I think that question has been answered. And, look, George may come forth with some sort of this is what the fans were hoping for, et cetera. Maybe that was it, but I agree with you. That makes zero sense whatsoever. With that, Patera would have been a fine turn Bockwinkle babyface – Bring Patera into feud with him, maybe even take the title. Nick chases the, I don't know. We can do fantasy booking forever. With that, this match is a fun match. It's a good match, but it's not a life change. This didn't make your top 100, did it? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I,
0: I didn't, I didn't, uh, uh, you know, like check this match out with the, uh, with the thought that though this is going to be like a t-. you know, I mean, honestly, uh, there was another match that popped up in my feed that was like uh Brody versus Flair. Now, uh-huh. we've done two, I think, for my top 100 that took place, I want to say, in the early part of 85. This was a match from 1983, which I'm sure was a great match. But I was like, we've fucking done that, you know? It's like I could go go out there and find some more Steamboat and Flair matches, but – to be with you, we've kind of done that, and this was a, a match we'd never done before. Uh, and uh, are you done? Because
1: uh, well, so last okay. comment, and I'll, actually it's a question for you, and then I can certainly. What did you think of Larry Matisik as a TV commentator? Larry Matisik gets a lot of love, much like – th- it's almost like anybody that was involved with that promotion is put on a pedestal, whether it's Sam Munchnik or Larry Madisick, you know, and maybe they deserve it. I, that's not a – I'm not criticizing that. What was your opinion of Larry as a, uh, a, a commentator, a TV commentator? Okay,
0: well, I've actually uh, got that in my notes, so uh, oh. let's, uh, let's talk about this. So, first of all, uh, your ring announcer – uh, as he was referred to by the St. Louis fans as Mickey Garagiola. Uh, you know, it, it kind of an interesting story because there's a video out there that I, I watched uh, the majority of that on the history of St. Louis wrestling. And they actually talked to a, a number of, fans that uh you know went back to when they were in the studio there and of course uh, it's, it's a little bit depressing now to see that all these fans that went to st louis wrestling back in the day are really a lot older now it's you know go figure the promotion's been out of business for almost 40 years now but um you know uh mickey was of course the brother of joe gargiola who was like the uh the nbc baseball guy for years had played uh in st louis for uh I know he played for the Cardinals. I don't know if he ever played for the Browns or not. Uh, but so that name had been out there for years and years. And so Mickey, you know, gets right into the spot and they've got a little name recognition with the, uh, the locals in St. Louis. So then we had Larry Matizak. Now it's interesting because I know that Meltzer was really Fond of Larry on a personal level, I you know, I don't know if he was like uh, Dave's contact in St. Louis. I really don't know. Uh, I'm just guessing that might have had something to do with it. He was very respected because he really, in a lot of ways, treated wrestling the way that Gordon solely treated wrestling. It wasn't like a lark. It wasn't a joke. He treated it like it was a sporting event. And I'm sure that's exactly the way that Sam Muchnick told him to treat it, much like Eddie, you know, instructed Gordon to treat it that way. He is very enthusiastic. He gives a lot of background, which I appreciated. I like the fact that, you know, he, he mentioned among other things, you know, the, the background of Kerry Von Erich. Of course, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the whole Kerry was going to go to the Olympics thing, uh, and that he was like some sort of, uh, Southwest conference discus champion and was probably the greatest all around natural athlete the country had ever produced until by God, the damn Russians, uh, you know, they prevented us from going to the 80 Olympics. I don't know, but, uh, and then of course Patera. Who was at, actually was a legitimate athlete. Uh, it's pretty much, uh, yeah, his brother's the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, which his brother was the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks at the time. Uh, so, you know, so I thought it was interesting them providing all this background on the guys. It was kind of, you know, he mentioned that Patera had just had, you know, come back from knee surgery. Uh, I like hearing all those little sort of, uh, background details. I think it enhances the match. Now was Larry Matizek. Uh, was he Gordon Soley? Was he Lance Russell? Uh, was he Vince McMahon Jr. as a broadcaster? Was he uh, uh, Jim Ross? No, but what Larry Matizek was, was perfect for St. Louis. Does that mean if I lived in Memphis that I would think that Larry Matizek was great? If I lived in South Florida, would I think Larry Matizek is great? Maybe not, but for that market, he was tailor-made for what they wanted, and I think he did a good job for the market. So what do you think of my answer?
1: Yeah, and that's and that's probably, I think he did a really decent job for the market. The only thing I don't really like about Larry Matisik's announcing was the tone of his voice, the tonal quality of his voice, his inflection and knowing when to, you know, raise his voice because something's taking place. I think he was very spot on with that. So I would think overall, I would give Larry Mattisick probably a solid B. And just leave it at that.
0: Well, and, you know, here's something uh, else that's that's interesting. You know, Larry Matizek, uh, just for those of you that don't know, was a guy that was essentially a fan who went down to Sam Muchnick's office in St. Louis and basically said, I want to be part of this. What can I do? Uh, you know, and, and I think at the very beginning he said, don't even pay me. I'll, I'll just help. And, you know, he started out being the guy that would do the flyers, uh, he would help making the program because the St. Louis wrestling program was kind of a big deal back uh, back yes. in the day, you know, and he helped out with that. And then eventually he works his way into, you know, maybe he's like doing some ring announcing for him. And then one day Sam makes the call and puts him behind the desk and he becomes the, you know, I think it was because uh, Joe Garagiola had either become full time with the Cardinals or it might have been when Joe uh, at, at one point uh, or another, Joe became the host of the Today Show. Uh, and New York, and so maybe that's when he had to give up his duties, you know, but anyway, Larry Matizek becomes... My dog is chewing on something. As we speak, hold on, we need to take a quick snappy break. Snap break! He is chewing on the chair leg, uh, of the, uh, the... Beautiful Baldron studio here uh, in sure. lovely Gainesville, Georgia. Anyway, getting back to it. So Larry Madison gets the job as the ring announcer, uh, and then he becomes the TV announcer. He does it, uh, uh, a lot of people thought, other than Gordon for a period of time, thought he was the second best announcer. But again, you know, people in Memphis, they're always going to love Lance. You know, people in Minnesota... They're always going to love the, the guys they had up there, uh, you know, uh, Roger Kent and Alderusha and all those other guys before Oakland got the job. Every market usually falls in love with the guy. I mean, let's be honest. You and I, we grew up in South Florida. We love fucking Gordon, you know, and, and, and yep. you know, so does everybody else that has a Florida background. And people that are, you know, just like the the people in the Mid-Atlantic, they love Bob Coddle. I get that. People in Mid-South, they love Boyd Pierce. And it's because it's what you knew. It's you know you you grew up with that. You became comfortable with that. And I completely get that. Now, do I think Larry Matizek was better than Gordon Soley? Eh, probably not. But that's because I didn't grow. If I grew up, you know, I went to high school right across the river from St. Louis in Belleville, Illinois. Shout out to all you Belleville Lancers. Uh, I I probably would think that Larry Matizek was was the best announcer of all time because that's what I knew and that's what I grew up with. Uh, you know, but so I, I don't have any problem with him. One thing about the promotion and what you said about the, uh, the matchups and the cards that they have. Let's be honest. One thing that's pretty well known, you can kind of see not only from the, this show, but from the card itself, uh, that, you know, the cards you referenced. St. Louis is a pretty conservative city back in the day. I don't know if it still is, but, uh, you know, I've talked about it before that when I was in high school, uh, the Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young, uh, came out and was banned from St. Louis radio. And St. Louis was a predominantly Catholic area at the time where there were parts of St. Louis that were predominantly Catholic. And there is a line in the song that says, you know, Virginia, don't hesitate. You Catholic girls start much too late, which is a reference to the fact that Catholic girls didn't want to give up the V card. And so that was like so strong uh, back in the, at that point in time that, of course, we we couldn't have that on the air because it would corrupt <laughs> the young listeners. Uh, you know, cause of course no, uh, no Catholic kids, uh, back in high school back in that time ever thought about having sex. No. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, couple other things. God was Patera so good in this match. Uh, just like his facial expressions. This was before he'd started getting really beat up and banged up where he stopped really taking bumps, but he, you know, his facial, like he, he, uh, gets a, uh, a sleeper hole put on him and he does the dazed look. And it's so good the way he just kind of like sells being dazed and confused. Ah, come here. Snap has begun chewing on the bone, and I'm taking the bone away. You'll get it back when we're done, mister. <clears throat> now then. So, uh, Patera is so good at his facial expressions and the bump taking and uh, looking dazed and confused. Carrie at this point just exudes like this guy's going to be a big deal, you know. He just looks like uh such a great athlete and like you said he hadn't got really thick and filled out yet. He just looked like, you know, he threw a one his first drop kick that he he threw. Like for a guy his size, just was so impressive, you know. And uh he threw, uh, a one later in the match where I think, uh, Patera was kind of backing towards him and carried threw it and he kind of hit him in the waist and, uh, kind of covered up by saying, oh, th- I think Patera, he's still on his feet. He may have blocked that one. You know, uh, it's always good when the announcer covers up for you. So, uh, and then, uh, Patera takes Kerry down and then at, at some point he looks over at Matizek and, uh, and Garagiola at, at the uh, ringside table and says, yeah, well, where's your pretty boy now? And, uh, it was just really, uh, effective playing to the crowd. Uh, so a couple of questions I have uh, for you, Barry. First of all, I noticed in this match, the atomic knee drop. When's the last time we saw an atomic <sighs> knee drop? On, on a topic? good one.
1: I don't know. 40 years. Yeah,
0: something like that. So, yeah. So then, now this is a question that uh, is definitely something for people of a certain age. Uh, uh, that means you and I, Barry. Uh-oh. Uh, versus, uh, people, let's just say of the younger generation that grew up, well, let's be honest, with more of the, the WWF product and the Hulkster and all that kind of stuff. Tell the folks that don't know why you think studio wrestling was better than, uh, arena wrestling as far as like a TV show. Or
1: do you think that? So we're talking about territory days. Why? Yeah, like, like, yeah, like because I mean, first off, I mean, in Florida was a great example. It was always dark. It was never lit properly. It it just it it was it never looked good on television. They would show you these arena highlights, and it was a it was clearly like somebody had gone in with a camera and and just filmed it but you know it wasn't the big production that you see in TV studios so is that what you're referring to is well no that?
0: you know i it's really just a matter of choice because people sure. in our age group will always say oh we loved you know 106 North Albany uh and and the studios there for uh, championship wrestling from Florida people from Memphis loved the studios uh it was it channel 5 i think it was wmmc tv yeah, I may, maybe be getting that wrong, but it was Channel 5 and they would, uh, shoot the wrestling, the TV wrestling from the studios there. Uh, you know, other territories, they would, they would, uh, have their TV studios. Uh, what, what do you call, uh, Mid South did it at the uh, Irish McNeil's Boys Club. Uh, so, you know, but then, of course, when Vince Jr. took over, he took it into the arenas and, you know, then uh, people of a certain age group, that's what they grew up with, was seeing wrestling, you know, on TV coming to them from an arena, not from a TV studio. So is one better, is one worse, or is it just strictly a matter of a generational thing and a matter of choice? What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's generational, but I think I'm understanding your question a little bit deeper now. So. Definitely our demographic and our age group would prefer studio wrestling. A lot of it's got to do with uh, the old TBS 605 wrestling program. Sure. No doubt. Absolutely. But yeah, it's, I'll give you a a good example. And and I think, you know, arena wrestling is all anybody knows these days, but do you remember in 1987 when CWF went from 106 North Albany, which was a very small building where they were filming it. It sat maybe 50 people. And all of a sudden, I believe they're running the sun dome and it, and, and Gordon was gone. It had Steve Kern and Jack Gregory. Do you remember that? Uh, I
0: remember, uh, what was his name? Stan, uh, Stan Rhodes, Stan Rhodes. And yeah. I know there was the show where, uh, hump was sitting in a wicker chair <laughs> and he was wearing the, the worst uh, show and, ever. And again, there are people that think of that as the glory days. of. There Europe. are,
1: there are oh, Ugh, God, that you know. was horrific. And then hump would do that and he would sit with the Tahitian Prince. Yes. It became yes. Samu and they were, they would sit in these wicker chairs and drink and this made it to TV every week. But yeah, towards the end of CWF, which would have been probably February of 87, they, uh, it, once Crockett took over, which was February, March, Gordon was gone. The old 106 North Albany was gone. And they were filming TV at the Sundome. And it was Jack Gregory, whoever he was, and Steve Kern were the announcers. And the show had a distinctly different vibe to it. Not just because you had removed Gordon, which clearly made no sense to me, but at the same time. Being in a big arena where you're having matches where there's, you know, anywhere between six and 20,000 people versus a studio where there's maybe a hundred max is a big difference.
0: Yeah. And you know, if Florida wasn't the only promotion to do that because I can recall that, uh, uh, continental, uh, the promotion, you know, that Ron Fuller had out of like Dothan, uh, and those areas, you know, they would bring Gordon up. And they weren't in a studio anymore. They were out in a, uh, you know, in an arena, and they would have like the little kind of set where Gordon would would be, and they'd have the little backdrop and, and such like that. So it wasn't like they were the only company that did that. I, I think in a way that it lost a lot of charm, but yes. I also think it was sort of a necessary evolution for the business because let's be honest, you know, like uh, uh, it's a different time and place now. We have our memories, we can enjoy it. Uh, and the reason I brought that up was because here in this match you know the crowd is uh, i said St. Louis is a relatively conservative city the crowd was was pretty was pretty on fire for this match you know and uh, honestly both guys gave good efforts and this was a good exciting match muchnick was a guy that was a very conservative promoter uh, this wasn't memphis okay they didn't they didn't put on great matches uh, every week or show highlights from the arena every week uh so when you got your uh match that was a TV studio match, that it was a matchup between two guys that were well-known, that uh, were, you know, quote-unquote main eventers. It was kind of a big deal, you know? And so that that's why uh, I, I focused on this match. You had two guys who were already pretty big names. Uh, so so let's talk about something else here. Uh, and by the way, this goes to a time limit draw. It's like uh, 10 minutes uh, there and something like that. Let's talk about when you – when you talk about how wrestling is is based on, uh, you know, uh, the amateur backgrounds and stuff like that, and Gordon used to always put that over as, you know, that's the most important thing. you, you got to have the amateur backgrounds and the amateur credentials. So how did we go from that to a finishing move on a guy uh, for a guy that was, you know, uh, starting to become a, re- a pretty big deal like Kerry was? that his finisher is the brain claw okay <laughs> and the claw, what's great is that his father was the one that came up with this gimmick uh the former nazi uh, fritz okay uh and apparently there is some sort of uh uh you know uh, heritage component of being able to pass down the the uh the face claw the brain claw whatever you want to call it uh, down to your kids uh, somehow the von Raschke kids the uh Don Jardine children, if there were any, they didn't uh get the ability to, you know, have the tendon strength the way the Von Era kids get. And Barry the brain claw as a finishing maneuver, what do you think?
1: So fun though. It's it's so hokey. And and I'll tell you what, uh Baron von Rashke and and uh you know, he was so much fun and uh and blackjack. Well, Bell, Blackjack for a short while, passed it down to B.W. But Blackjacks you know. was – Blackjacks, in my, in my opinion, Blackjacks was terrible. He would essentially just put his, his hand on someone's head. At least Von Raschke would grip his wrist and make that motion. And, you know, I just – I love that. And Don't forget B.W., who apparently is doing well and is kicked out of ICU right now. But B.W. uh actually had a feud with Von Raschke at one point, C.W.F., in the early 80s. I, yeah. So who had the best claw, Jeff? Who had the best and who had the worst? I'm going to say worst for me, Blackjack without a doubt.
0: Yeah. And the funny thing is, is I remember when Blackjack was up in the, uh, the federation, I want to say around 82. Remember they did the gimmick where he would apply the claw. They put the big giant X on the screen. Yes. Yeah. So they, we, we don't want you to see this, uh, you know, this carnage that's going to happen here. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it must have been like, uh, uh, probably Fritz, you know, Fritz or, or Von Rasky, one of the two, because, you know, they, uh, had the hold over so much as a just a killer hold you know uh and it wasn't like uh other than going against like shall we say uh lower tier talent you know like uh I don't really see the uh the uh the Von Erichs winning a lot of uh like world title matches with the claw fritz was the one that came up with the gimmick i guess or somebody gave it to him and that was his go to uh gimmick back in the day when he got over as a main eventer did waldo use the claw as well I think Waldo, uh, I want to say, was it Waldo or Frit- No, it was Kowalski used the stomach claw. Uh, and so I don't know if, if Waldo used that. I, I remember everything I heard about Waldo was his big finisher was using the riding crop.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is, which is kind of not the same. Anyway, we will post a link to this match again, August 2nd, 1981. Ken Patera taking on Kerry, Von, Eric and our group breaking cape with Bowdry and Barry. Barry, I know you love talking a little NBA, little hoops action. I give to you Barry Rose, the top NBA rookies that destroyed their teams. Oh, it's a, it's a how'd you get this indiv- type of well, list? Well, you know, I, you know, where I, does that I, come from? Well, I do research for the program. Uh, can we both say that? Probably no. not, but anyway. No. So, uh, I'm going to offer up not the top 30 worst NBA draft choices of all time. We'll, we'll take this into the uh, 10 to 15 range here because all right. you know, we've only got a limited amount of time, uh, four hours or so to kill. All right, so, so one,
1: uh, one question. Where does Purvis Ellison wind up on your list?
0: Never nervous Purvis? Well, I guess yes. we will just have to
1: see. <laughs> okay. So right. uh,
0: let's take it uh, from number – how about number 15 and uh, i'll just say if we get one of these guys from yugoslavia whose name i can't pronounce or the former yugoslav republic uh then we'll just skip past him uh scrolling 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 and we are now at number well, geez we're at number 18 uh 17 up oh, the never nervous purpose at number 17 barry just uh oh,
1: that's just not bad All Yeah, right.
0: yeah so uh let's see uh 16, Joe Klein, uh, two in a row from the Sacramento Kings. Gee, you think they might have struggled for a bit? Yes. Yeah. Think number they're still, 15, they're Barry. Still struggling? Yes. Yes. No, actually yeah. they're not. They've like won like 10 in a row at the time. No, they're
1: actually doing okay this year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, uh, <laughs> number 15, Barry, uh, straight out of UNC. Shout out to my boys, Oban and John Hitchcock. Marvin Williams. I think he was like the number one pick on the, yes, he was number one pick in 2005 for the Atlanta Hawks. Barry do you remember never starving Marvin
1: no <laughs> to okay give you a clear indication of a guy well, like he was that.
0: right off winning a national title for the uh yes for, for the uh, solid uh, blue of UNC the tar heels so why don't we just skip to number 14 Dennis Hobson from uh, yeah. Ohio State went to the New Jersey Nets back in 1987 that's when New Jersey had those horrible looking uniforms do you remember those?
1: I do remember those too, and I'll tell you what, New Jersey was, when I lived up in New York, we would actually go see a bunch of net games. Uh, easy bus over the, over the bridge great seats you could get and it was the weirdest team ever you had john lucas who was your coach and john lucas had a uh, a track record within the N- the uh, the nba Sean former Radley. number
0: 1 pick overall in the draft out of maryland john lucas
1: yeah and he was a solid player not the greatest coach he was uh, he was a guy that i guess had battled alcohol and drugs and was very much about rehabilitation and was taking guys that had had issues. And, uh, the team was a, just a, you know, it was Carrie Kittles, uh, Sean Bradley. You know, Sean Bradley's paralyzed, by the way. Did you know that?
0: Did he not get hurt in like a, some sort of like he was bicycling? Yeah. Yeah. I guess please. it was
1: out in Utah, I got hit by a car. He was yeah. bicycling. He's par- I mean, imagine being seven-something and paralyzed. Yeah,
0: you're seven-foot-six on a bicycle, and the guy in the car doesn't see you. What the
1: hell? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a guy who's seven-six riding a bicycle, honestly, Google Maps would focus in on that yeah. from a satellite. So, yeah, how does a guy not see that? I do remember uh, Hobson, yeah.
0: Former Hobson. Big Ten Player of the Year at the – well, it's not the Ohio State anymore after the Michigan game, <clears throat> but I digress. Ooh. So – uh but yes, all Big Ten honors, player of the year, uh, came in and never seemed to live up to the expectations in Jersey yep. as so many have failed to do, Barry. Although according to this article, he, uh, he once led the team scoring a whopping 16 points a game during that 89-90 season. Uh, when your team's leading scorer is averaging 16 points a game, that's generally a pretty good sign that your team wasn't that good that year, Barry. What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's some things never need to be stated. This would be one of them. You'd be absolutely correct, Jeff. And the article
0: also points out that in lieu uh you know uh of drafting other guys and picking Dennis Hobson, they passed on the following players uh oh. Scotty Pippen, oh. Kevin KJ Johnson, Horace Grant, Reggie Lewis, Mark Jackson, and Reggie Miller.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Perhaps in retrospect, that was not a good choice by the Nets. Uh, Kevin just, Johnson,
1: we're just talking about Sacramento. Isn't Kevin Johnson like the mayor out there or something?
0: He could be. I'll bow to your better knowledge. All Number right. 13, former BYU guard, Jimmer, who names their kid Jimmer? Jimmer. Jimmer Fredette from 2011. Uh, what do you remember about Jimmer besides that god awful name?
1: So he was, uh, if you gotta remember, he was an electric player. And former he, NCAA player of the year, he wasn't. And, and I, I believe his team, if they didn't go to the final Four the year before he entered the NBA, they certainly were in maybe the top 16, the sweet 16. I, I know that he was right there because I remember watching horrible name, but a really exciting player to watch. If if I remember correctly, the scouting reports, he was he had no control. He's all over the place. But if you remember, he was this uh, spark plug of a little white kid and just running up and down the court, a lot of energy, just really exciting. But he, he couldn't get into the playmaking. So, yeah, that's a shame. I'd like to,
0: to like to point out that the uh, racist Barry Rose having that's to right. point out that Jimmer was white.
1: Little white kid is what little I said. Little white kid, absolutely. you know. I'm, yes. I'm just
0: saying if you flip that the other way, Barry, you know, we'd well, be getting some see, complaints.
1: I, I would – things I would never do, so. Well, okay. Yeah. So
0: I will point out that that little white kid, uh, yes. Jimmer, did go on to become the 2017 league MVP for the Chinese Basketball Association, Barry. So he's over yeah. in Japan now. Uh, well, so or China, real- as I said, the Chinese Basketball Association usually does not take place in Japan. I'm just going to point that out. Japan, China. Too, that's two racist comments from you there. Uh, this is going to be <laughs> apparently the all-racist episode here. Uh, the, uh, guys l- drafted after Jimmer for debt <laughs> you ready, Bear? Yeah. Clay Thompson, oh. Kawhi Leonard, Alec Burks, Reggie Jackson, uh Boyan Bogdanovich, and Jimmy Butler.
1: <clears throat> wow. So. so apparently Jimmer, born James, Jimmer was the nickname, still playing uh in China Playing for Is that Japanese, Japan or China, Barry? Just playing for a Japanese team called the Shanghai Sharks. He's a point shooting guard, number 32. But you're right. He was round one in the NBA draft, pick number 10. And, uh, what, how many years in the league was he in? Like two? Uh, if apparently even. not long. Two? No, so, three, maybe three.
0: At number 12, Barry, the aforementioned Sean Bradley. The big man again, BYU, their <sighs> second appearance on this Larry, uh, list, Larry yeah. or Barry, uh, from 1993. Yeah. This guy was huge. I, I mean, just a massive, massive human being, uh, at his height. And, you know, I, I guess when you're playing at BYU in the WAC conference at the time, uh, it wasn't especially hard to dominate when you're seven foot six.
1: No. And sweet Lou checking in, KJ was Sacramento's mayor for a time. Sweet Lou. Tell me I'm wrong. I believe there was also a scandal involved.
0: Oh, Um, Lou's going to delve into that one. Lou's
1: going to – I believe KJ had a scandal, and I think he was always trying to come off as the nice guy. Sean Bradley was interesting to me because there was – this was an error, and and we still see it, but definitely not like we used to. But they would take guys – with really limited ability and George Mirasan is a name that also comes to mind. Right around the same time as Sean Bradley, minute bowl. There were quite a few. Sean Bradley had minor skills, but you got to remember Sean Bradley, seven, six, whatever the number was, weighed about a buck fifty, thin as could be. And he was awkward. He was awkward out there. The, what I remember also about Sean Bradley was he was a target. Sean was a target for a lot of players. And I watched him one night in New Jersey get roughed up by a guy who was probably six five. And uh, you know, and I think I think a lot. I think Sean would try to block shots. And those big forearms would rain down on somebody. So he made some enemies during his day and his team, if I remember correctly, never, never embraced him. You know, if this was the New York Knits and somebody started a fight with one of the players, the Knits, the New York <laughs> Knits, if somebody started, <laughs> that's their farm it, team, the Knits. That's their, should, could be. Well, they're, they're a fucking farm team at this stage, but it, it just, you know, it, every other player on the team would clear the bench and come to their their rescue and with Sean Bradley you never really saw it and he struck me as a nice guy i know he was extremely moral uh had a had a code he lived by i don't think he was ever truly made for the nba so did he destroy that team i don't think so did he contribute to that team still sucking yeah he did
0: so i remember the famous photo on draft night of uh Sean Bradley and David Stern, and I swear Sean Bradley was a solid two feet taller, and he literally, I think, put his elbow on top of Stern's head. It yeah. was really kind of a funny photo. Those drafted after, uh, Sean Bradley that year, Penny Hardaway, Alan Houston, Sam Cassell. Yeah. So, you know, Sean again, as you said, it, he was this seven foot six, and, and I'm sure somebody in the uh, front office of Philadelphia, Probably thought, wow, well, you know, this guy, well, you know, he, he'll be a force in the middle blocking shots, but sure. Yeah, it just didn't, uh, didn't happen. Didn't happen. Number 11. Now here's the guy. 1995 Golden State Warriors from Maryland. The ACC uh, player of the year in 95. A UPI AP player of the year. Naismith college player. Joe Smith. He was a hell of a college player. Just never, for whatever reason, translated to the NBA bear.
1: And what year was that? What year?
0: Uh, 95.
1: You- yeah. So he was. Where did he go?
0: He went to Golden State.
1: Golden State. Where else did Joe Smith play? Do
0: you know? Does you have that down there? He, ba- he quote, bounced around the league quite a bit, uh, in 13 years.
1: Yeah, he did. He was, and he was, he, look, he, it didn't translate. He became definitely lost in the shuffle. Uh, he was, let's say, let's say just another guy in the NBA where he was in college. He was a star player, but he still, at least in his early years, Joe Smith contributed and did okay. I was kind of a fan. I just sad he never made it, but yeah, I was a fan. I want to say that he was a guy at
0: about six foot 10, who was a nice size center uh, at Maryland, but at six foot 10, and uh, you know, with his size, I just don't think that translated uh, to the center position in the NBA. He was probably better suited to be a forward. And maybe he, had, that was part of the problems. He had uh, trouble transitioning to a, a different group. Uh, Lou pointing out there were sexual harassment allegations. Oh against Kevin Johnson, allegations, suppositions. Anyway, getting back to Joe Smith, guys taken after Joe Smith, Barry, uh, Jerry Stackhouse, Damon Stoudemire, Sheed, I'm going to call him Sheed Wallace, and Kevin Garnett. Wow. wow. Own, uh, is missing out there, Barry. Uh, now, here we go, Barry. This guy is not from uh, the former Yugoslavia, as you can tell, but uh, do you remember from 2010, I'm going to mispronounce the name, uh Ekpe Udo from the Golden State Warriors? No, I don't. Okay. Uh, former Michigan player, uh, his number six pick, uh, he was cut within two years. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to skip. Over. He ended up in Europe, uh, played for the, he was a Turkish league all star for God's sakes, Barry. So you know that, uh, he was a hell of a player there. Obviously the guys taken after him include, uh, Gordon Hayward, Paul George. So, you know. Yeah, maybe they uh, might have missed out a bit on that. Uh So number nine, oh Barry, here's a story: a guy that uh eh, just had some bad luck. Now he's on. I don't know. I don't know if he's on TNT or or one of the major cable stations. Jay Williams, uh, coming out of Duke in 2002, got drafted by the uh, the Bulls, and oh Barry had that motorcycle accident. But it was a guy that was the Player of the Year in college for Duke uh, for two years. Uh, excellent college player. Uh, had a motorcycle accident and oh, Barry, apparently as part of his contract, he was not supposed to be on a motorcycle. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, he ended up <clears throat> suffering a severed main nerve in his leg, a fractured huh. pelvis, three dislocated ligaments, including an ACL. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the bulls chose to pay him his owed $3 million, uh, to help him with his rehab. But he never made it back and now works for ESPN. Uh, Memories of Jay Williams.
1: <sighs> Solid player. I guess a utility guy in a sense. So n- nobody that's ever going to, uh, you know, was going to change the world. I didn't think that either when he came into the league. Yeah, you know, I I I think, if anything, if I remember correctly, good attitude, guy you'd want to have around the locker room, could put up a few points, play a little D, but we're not talking superstar here.
0: So, next, Barry, at number eight, Memphis Grizzlies in 2009, drafting Hashim Thabit. Do you remember old Hashim coming out of the Big East?
1: I do, and I remember because I remember the last name extremely well. Same thing. Uh I don't. How many years in the league? Two years? Three? Years uh, wait.
0: Top three pick. uh Former Big East Player of the Year. Let me just check. It <laughs> did okay defensively, but never seemed to connect with the NBA style. He wasn't much of a scorer. A scorer. And while he did great in college, was terrible by NBA standards. Bear. That's what the article says here. Are you ready for some of the names that were drafted after Hashim? Oh, yeah. Let's hear uh, uh, Well, you got there uh, James Harden, Steph Curry. Wow. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, uh, Drew Holiday, uh, Tariq Evans, Ricky Rubio, Pride of Spain. uh and, You know, uh, this was a pretty big misstep, I would say. That's a huge misstep. It's exactly right. Yeah. Number seven, Barry, out of Michigan. We, we've got a few, I don't know if you noticed, a few Michigan fans in our group. Mm. Do my best to get them out as soon as possible. Robert Tractor Trailer, 1998. You remember Robert Tractor Trailer getting drafted by the Mavs?
1: I sure do. And I believe he spent at least a season with the Knicks, if I'm recalling correctly. He was a guy. So he didn't have essentially a basketball body. They called him Tractor because of the thickness and, uh, he was, he was- thick like
0: Melvin Burpin Turpin.
1: Melvin? <laughs> i do i do he was a he was a big guy but he was and he was he was i think he was grossly overweight also uh i don't know grossly but he was definitely overweight but he put up a couple of years where i thought we were going to get something out of him and as it turned out he just kind of faded away i think it was weight gain he faded away and he was done but he could have been a powerhouse Just never ever hit that potential
0: so you're going to like this story bearer oh so the Mavs, uh, after deciding that uh, Tractor Trailer wasn't working out for them, uh, they're looking around trying to make a trade. So the Bucks decide they need a guy like uh, Tractor Trailer with, with his rebounding and great defensive skills. So they trade him to the Mavs. Uh, the Mavs trade him to the Bucks. So guess who the Mavs end up <laughs> picking in lieu of the loss they suffered from Robert Tractor Trailer? A little guy named Dirk Navinsky. Wow. That was a pretty good trade for Dallas. I'm just going to put it out on a limb there.
1: Slightly too. Did yeah. he, did, did tractor trailer, pl- was he a Nick?
0: Uh, I do not remember. I got to be honest. I don't remember him being with the Knicks. He may have been. If it was, it was a season as much as at most. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we discussed his weight situation. He uh, passed away at only 34 years old. Very oh, Believed heart attack. So, uh, serious.
1: But, oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Now, <clears throat> Barry at number six here. From 2007, one of the all-time draft busts, and in this case, I want to say it was because of a, uh, a guy. You know, Bill Walton always had problems with his feet, you know, his ankles and feet injuries and stuff like that. And I want to say this guy had similar problems, again, from Ohio State, Greg, uh, Greg I almost said Ogden. It's Odin.
1: Yeah, uh, of course, but you know the deal with that guy. Oh, it please was,
0: enlighten us, Bear.
1: Oh, absolutely. He was uh he was plagued by injuries from the get-go, and he was plagued. If I'm correct, these injuries actually followed him from college. He never really. Where, where did he wind up? Was it Portland that actually drafted him? Was yes. It it? Yeah, he never never had a career. I know that there were multiple comeback attempts if comebacks even the right word, there were multiple attempts to get his career started and it never got off the ground because of injuries. And it was something significant. It might've been knee, uh, but it was something that just wasn't going to go away. Supposedly great guy, obviously in college had a hell of a, a hell of a career, never had any sort of career in the NBA though. Very sad.
0: Yeah. And you know, a guy I remember when he, cause when he hit the, uh, you know, Ohio state, even as a freshman, he was a huge deal because he was you know he had been such a dominant player in in high school and stuff like that so it was a really big deal that uh, <clears throat> that he got picked up by Ohio State but he was a guy that when he was a freshman in college he, he looked like he was 32. Oh yeah you know I mean he just had a, a very older looking face uh, you know but again uh, you know a lot of injuries sorry that and sad that it didn't work out number five Barry, we're into the top five. Darko, is it, how do you say it, Malakic. Mlock, uh,
1: remember yeah. Darko? Yeah, I remember Darko.
0: I remember Darko because Darko was always the guy that was
1: included in trades. You Always include plus the name. How do you forget the name Darko? Yeah. Uh, Drafted by the Pistons in
0: 2003, Barry.
1: Yeah, but was supposed to be a big deal, right? Was, yeah. Uh, Seven foot from Serbia. <laughs> He was supposed to be the, uh, the, the big star for the Pistons. It was a big draft. That was a huge bust though. Where, where did he wind up?
0: Well, Barry, he did spend some time according to a photo that's published in this article with the beloved New York Knicks.
1: There you go. Doesn't,
0: doesn't everyone
1: eventually? Well, except, him? except for, uh, what's his name? Tractor trailer that I looked up. He was not a Nick. He was Cleveland. And that's what I was, I was. What thinking. kind
0: of quality research are you doing there, Rose? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, thank, thank God you've got a regular job as opposed to <clears throat> me and Lou. That's another story for another time.
1: That's uh, true
0: though. Yeah. So here are some of the players that were drafted after, uh, the beloved Darko. Uh-huh. Carmelo Anthony never met a playoff loss. He didn't have fun, uh, participating in Chris Bosch, Dwayne Wade. No, uh, what, whoa,
1: whoa. What's the criticism with Dwayne Wade?
0: No, that wasn't Dwayne uh, Wade. I was criticizing it was Carmelo.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, you, but you said, you said Carmelo, Chris, Bosh, yeah. Dwayne. Okay.
0: So, no, it was Carmelo that after he got swept by the Celtics.
1: Oh, I had fun.
0: We, oh, we yeah, had yeah, fun. Yeah. That yeah. was
1: embarrassing.
0: Yeah. Fuck you, Carmelo. Uh, but, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, other guys, I'm trying to see if there's anybody else of a name. Uh, Kyle Corver. Uh,
1: right, let me ask you a question here. Okay. How ask me medical. a question. Carmelo and LeBron, same year. Coming up both, uh you know, I don't know what, uh I guess they were both extremely young. Who are you going with? I'm not talking about with today's knowledge. I'm talking about the knowledge you have because Carmelo, to me, seemed the easy choice in that stage. Well,
0: I mean, <clears throat> he came off his uh, one-and-done year at Syracuse, won the national title. So, obviously, he had a great resume. Yeah. But LeBron was the guy that was, like, uh, going to be the next face of the league. Even then, coming out of high school, they said that. So, you know, but I, I mean, I can see the argument for uh, for Carmelo.
1: Yeah, and I would have gone Carmelo, and you know, and we saw how that all worked out. Where uh, you know, I, I don't even know where he's even is he with the L A. now. I don't God even knows. Well, um,
0: he's got he's got to get a job so he can afford that uh, that wife of his who loves to spend money uh, by all accounts.
1: Didn't they get <laughs> divorced?
0: Um, uh, he, well, he's paying alimony. Then I'm he's sure. paying a lot of alimony. Yeah, trust me. Sure. Trust me. He didn't get out of that marriage for free. If he got out. Yeah. Number four, Barry, this is one of those names that whenever it is brought up, oh, there's a name that is associated with it. 1984, Portland. Again, Portland. Boy, Portland has not having a lot of luck with those early draft picks. Sam Bowie, Bowie, whatever you want to say, uh, you know, a guy that was just star-crossed. He was a hell of a college player at Kentucky, I will say that, but he got drafted in front of fucking Michael Jordan, for God's sakes.
1: Yeah, so again, he was supposed to be a big deal. Sam Bowie was uh or Bowie uh was supposed to be I guess a savior with the NBA and uh yeah, what well, you know, two or three years, Boston, if I'm correct. I I think I still have his rookie card, which I've got encased, slabbed between plastic, PSA certified, worth about 10 cents at this stage. So yeah.
0: Yeah, if you had that same card, but with Michael Jordan, it might be yeah. worth a little bit of cash.
1: I could give up that full-time job that we were just talking so about. So
0: here's a couple of the guys that were drafted after Sam Bowie, okay? Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Sam Perkins, Alvin Robertson, Otis Thorpe, Kevin Willis, and John Stockton. Wow. I think Portland might have made a, a misstep on that uh, draft there. But uh number three, Barry, from 1998, Michael Olowokandi from the Clippers. This one hurt. Drafted because- number one in 1998.
1: Yeah. Drafted number one. And, and again, this guy was supposed to be a big deal. And I, there was a lot of press, a lot of marketing coming out about him in 98 and that went absolutely nowhere. So yeah.
0: Michael Olawakandi was drafted over the likes of Vince Carter, Paul Pierce.
1: Wow. And Dirk Nowitzki. Well, Vince Carter's still playing in the NBA. I think he's 86 right now. <laughs> yes. Somehow, but yeah. He's, he's going doing... through those. He wants to do five decades. He's right? <laughs> first guy in the history of the NBA to yeah. do five decades. It'll be
0: wonderful. Number two, Barry, 2006. Yeah. A lot of times that guys get the, uh, hot run during the NCAA tournament, okay. uh, and some of their flaws, uh, that, uh, you know, maybe the scouts choose to overlook because they're that hot player for the moment. Like Adam Morrison, I believe he played uh, Gonzaga, but, uh, came out, uh, in 2006. And, uh, one of the things the scouts chose to overlook, the type one diabetes. Ah, you know, that might have caused some of the problems. I remember former Chicago Cub great Ron Santo, uh, hid the fact that he had type one diabetes. Uh, and, uh, that was one of the things that gave him problems. And yet Ron Santo, a Hall of Famer. However, Adam Morrison, not a Hall of Famer Barry. What do you remember about him? I don't, you know, I don't remember a whole lot about him. What year was that? The 2006, uh he had a big NCAA tournament, uh shaggy hair, uh kind of a mustache, uh white. So he was the next white guy that was supposed to be Larry Bird essentially, uh and needless to say, <clears throat> did not quite reach that status, Barry. Drafted in front of guys like uh, Kyle Lowry, uh Rajan Rondo, uh, Paul Millsap, and JJ Reddick. Uh, however, at number one, Barry, allow me to introduce to you the man considered to be the worst draft choice of all time by the Washington, the Washington bullets,
1: Barry. I think. All right. Hold called. on. Hold on. So is it, is it, it's not George Murison?
0: Not no, George Murison was just like kind of, he was, yeah, I don't even think he was a first round pick.
1: All right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, this was the guy that was picked first overall in the draft. Was this the next? Oh, shit, and this is going to kill me. This this is the guy that was picked to, to be the next Jordan, right? Nope. Okay, then I don't know who it is. Kwame Brown. That's it, Kwame. So, no, yeah, Jordan, he was supposed to be Jordan's protege, Kwame. I was going to call him Kawhi, and then, of course, I had Kawhi Leonard, which I knew it wasn't. Kwame was supposed to be the biggest deal. I think he was straight out of high school, right? Yeah,
0: and, and, and I, when I say he wasn't supposed to be the next Jordan, is because he was a center, I believe.
1: No, no, uh, but he was – but for some reason, Jordan was responsible for his – I forget exactly what it was. And then he did something in Washington, and I want to say that – because Jordan was there when he was there. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Jordan J- – that was a Jordan pick, and something happened, and – I don't know if he was bust out of Washington and went somewhere else. And then I think he got two strikes, and I want to say he was banned from the league. Something happened with him, though, and we never saw it. He was a kid. I think he was, what, 18 when he entered the league.
0: Yeah, he was drafted right out of high school. Ended up uh, playing for seven different teams. Career average of 6.6 6 points and 5.5 5 rebounds per game, <clears throat> which is uh, <clears throat> a nice little career if you were drafted 42nd. But if you're drafted first overall in the draft, that's not a very good career. I, I'm just gonna, 12 seasons, though. I'm shocked. No, uh, so here's the thing. Here are the guys that were drafted uh after him, okay? And, and then I'm going to make it. Tyson Chandler, Paul Gasol, Jason Richardson, Joe Johnson, Zach Randolph, Gerald Wallace, Tony Parker, Gilbert Arenas, uh, Mahedo Core, Richard Jefferson, and, and they said, and even Troy Murphy. <laughs> Troy, Troy Murphy from Notre Dame, by the way, who was a hell of a shooter in college. But other than, like, a couple, maybe two guys that in the list, it shows you it wasn't a really good draft year, apparently. Until, yeah, that's a sure. shitty year. So, uh, yeah. But, so we will post a, a link to this article. Barry, Barry, who would you say was your uh, pick that you remember being a huge <sighs> bust based on where they were drafted?
1: It's... So it's going to go to Boston for me. It's either going to be Sam Bowie or Purvis Ellison. Greg Oden, yeah, but the only thing I could say with him is that that was injuries. That that wasn't uh, a guy that didn't fit into the system or didn't adapt. He just legit was injured tempted to say Ralph Sampson, too, though. Ralph Sampson did have some good years, yeah. uh, and those years coincided playing right next to Akeem Elijahwan, But Ralph Sampson was another guy that just never caught – well, I'm going to go Sam Bowie based off your list. The,
0: the problem was that Ralph Sampson, <clears throat> who for four years was unquestionably the best player in college basketball. Sure. I mean, Ralph Sampson was fucking amazing. Uh, however, because of his size, his knees began to give him, you know, the guy had arthritic knees by the time he was 25 fucking years old. Okay. Sure. And, uh, but <clears throat> when you say he played alongside of Olajuwon, you know, the the success that the Rockets had was not strictly because of Olajuwon. Olajuwon, a Hall of Famer, absolutely was, was a large part of it, but Ralph was a hell, a hell of a player too. Uh, and, um, they also had Rodney McRae from Louisville. <clears throat> the guy that I was going to say that I I would think, just based on his selection, I did not mention him, but he was on the list, like maybe further down the list, like uh in the 20s or something like that. Do you remember the year that the Cavaliers drafted Winston Bennett?
1: What year was that?
0: Or, oh, God, it was like uh 10 or 15 years ago. But he was a guy that was like a solid player. I think he played at Kentucky. And he gets drafted. And the night they they drafted him, number one, literally the night of the draft, the announcers are kind of going, what the fuck? Winston Bennett? Like, you know, it right. was th- this guy that was thought of as a solid player, but nobody thought, uh, that he was going to be the number one pick in the draft. So we will post a link to this article and our group breaking cafe with Bowden and Barry. All right, Barry, what do you say We're about to turn the corner, head for home on yet another jam packed, federally approved based on our food discussion. Edition of Breaking Gap with Boudron and Barry, episode 271. You about ready to call it a wrap, my man?
1: So we had food talk. We had wrestling. We had NBA talk on this one. We had a little COVID discussion. We had uh, employees not utilizing social media correctly. Is there any other podcast on the face of the earth? That Fuck has-
0: no. I'm going to just guy. say it. Fuck no. Right. you know so anyway on that note I will say fuck no I mean fuck yeah to all our (laughs) listeners we're very happy you decided to tune in to this fine production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on behalf of producer Lou Kippelman I am Jeff Bowdron they call me the booker Good night, bunny or goodnight gunny I don't know who this bunny is I'll see you in the morning buddy I love you and our uh, co-host Barry Rose we will talk to you next week. (laughs) Hopefully I can form a CoBerns (laughs) then.